the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 18, A Popular Revolution. Today we're going to be discussing the popular nationalism which swept across France in 1789 and 1790, and we're going to be diving into the customs and traditions which arose from this popular sentiment. Now, since we're going to be discussing everything from liberty trees to liberty hats, from revolutionary parades to revolutionary cockades, I have assembled a collection of illustrations and sketches which show what these things actually looked like. In the description of this episode, as well as on the homepage of greyhistory.com, you'll find a link to all these illustrations. If you want, feel free to check them out, either before, during or after the episode, to get a better idea of what these ceremonies and funny little red hats actually looked like. So, without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 18, A Popular Revolution. Have you ever learnt a new word and completely and utterly butchered it? Maybe you slaughtered the pronunciation. Maybe you used it completely in the wrong context. Maybe you just didn't know what the word actually meant. I butchered a word just 48 hours ago. I'm currently undertaking a crash course in Spanish in Medellin, Colombia. Until the other day, I knew five words in Spanish. Hola, amigo, tequila, por favor, gracias. They've served me pretty well, but I figured it was time to get a few more words under my belt. Of course, if you're learning Spanish in Medellin, you might as well learn salsa in Medellin, and it was at salsa class that I conducted my aforementioned butchering. When asked by my partner how old I was, I informed her that I was 25 anuses. The difference between vientecinco anos and vientecinco años is still something I'm struggling with. Learning new words can be tough. It's made easier when other people around you already know the word you're using. They can help you with the pronunciation, the right context, what the word does and does not mean. But imagine learning new words when they are not only unfamiliar to you, but they're also unfamiliar to pretty much everyone you associate with. Because that was the situation that many in France would have found themselves in throughout 1789. Words like Liberty and equality would have been unfamiliar to the average French citizen as the revolution erupted across the nation. The definitions of these words were, at best, evolving. More realistically though, for many individuals, the definitions of these words would have been unknown or uncertain. To people who live in the modern Western world, what democracy is and is not is relatively clear. 
We might argue around the edges over things like freedom of speech or voting rights, but the fundamentals of what is and is not a democracy does seem to have been fairly settled within our societies. However, we've had a few centuries of continuous democracy to iron out the creases. Until 1789, most French men would never have voted, all French women would never have voted, and so just what democracy was and was not was not exactly immediately obvious to those who were living in revolutionary France. Likewise, we in the modern Western world have been familiar with the concept of equality for some time, even if its meaning has changed over the years. But the citizens of pre-revolutionary France had only ever known institutionalised inequality. The nation had been formally divided into three separate estates. So it should be no surprise that it took some time for the citizens of revolutionary France to figure out just what was and was not equality. Furthermore, what was and was not liberty, fraternity, popular sovereignty, nationhood, citizenship, choose your revolutionary idea and the statement still holds. It's noteworthy that it wasn't just the common people which struggled to define the new, popular, revolutionary ideas which the nation was rapidly embracing. Not even the deputies themselves could figure it out. One moment they declared in the Declaration of the Rights of Man that men were born and remained free and equal in rights. The next moment, those same deputies declared that only the rich had the right to vote. Similarly, the Declaration of Rights guaranteed the rights of liberty and resistance to oppression. Yet despite this, the authors of that declaration bitterly fought over the emancipation of Jews, and conveniently forgot the word which started with S and ended with L-A-V-E-R-Y. Of course, don't even bother pointing out that women, some 50% of the population, were totally disenfranchised. Unsurprisingly, defining the scope and limitations of the popular concepts which the revolution propagated proved difficult. But what was far easier to define, however, was the ways in which one could express support for these ideas. Throughout 1789 and 1790, a whole host of new traditions, ceremonies and customs were created as a genuinely popular, pro-revolution sentiment spread across the nation of France. An assortment of revolutionary rituals flourished as the French people sought to demonstrate their enthusiasm for the ideas that the new order had unleashed. After the abolition of privileges in August, a patriotic and revolutionary fever started to sweep across the nation. People wanted to express their support for the reforms being pursued by the Assembly, particularly the abolition of privileges, and so the hunt was on for new revolutionary traditions. One tradition which became widespread was the planting of liberty trees. Originating from the springtime tradition of erecting maypoles in village centres at the time of spring planting, the installation of liberty trees became a potent symbol of the revolution and such ceremonies were in fact institutionalised by multiple revolutionary governments. While the traditional maypoles represented fertility, the living nature of their replacements meant that liberty trees also came to represent growth and rejuvenation. Two fitting ideas for a new nation with an old history. The planting of liberty trees themselves were often accompanied or followed by elaborate demonstrations of revolutionary allegiance. In these ceremonies, members of the local municipal authorities would swear an oath to the revolution, as well as members of the local National Guard battalion. Musicians would play, priests might give a sermon, and the townsfolk would hold hands and sing and dance around their newly planted symbol of freedom. Of course, as any decent 20th century revolutionary would tell you, 
you can't have a revolutionary tradition without involving the children. So, naturally, school kids participated as well. Personally, I think it's a little Orwellian that these kids would join miniature National Guard units, referred to as Battalions of Hope, and then would get up and recite things like, We live for our patrie, and our last sighs will be for her. But, hey, who am I to judge? Luckily for little Pierre over there, he'd grow up to be the perfect fighting age for when Napoleon decided to battle all of Europe at once. So in the case of dying for the motherland, dreams really do come true. As I always say, dream, believe, achieve. Anyway, I digress. These types of ceremonies spread across the nation throughout 1789 and 1790, and the Liberty Tree thus became one of the most recognisable symbols of the revolution. For a people struggling to define the boundaries of the revolutionary ideas they supported, it was much easier to define the customs used to support those ideas, and the planting of liberty trees was one such custom which rapidly spread throughout the nation. In fact, liberty trees became such a potent symbol of the revolution that it became a capital offence to cut them down by the time of the French Republic. As opposition rose against the terror, people would indeed be guillotined for this crime. The trees themselves were often young saplings, and were generally elm, linden, oak, ash or fir. Unfortunately, however, many of these trees were in the habit of dying, despite having been blessed by the local priest. As you can imagine, a dead liberty tree wasn't exactly the best omen for the budding revolution. The result was that maypoles, draped in blue, red and white ribbons, sprouted up across the country as alternatives to living trees. Thus, in an ironic twist, In order to celebrate new beliefs, the people returned to old traditions. Nevertheless, henceforth, wherever the French Revolution went, so too did liberty trees, be they living trees or dead poles. The planting of liberty trees wasn't the only revolutionary tradition or ceremony which started to become prominent across France throughout 1789 and 1790. Ceremonies that simultaneously brought together multiple communities in revolutionary celebrations became prevalent as well. In these ceremonies, delegations from towns and municipalities would put aside their historic differences to join in unison as a common people sharing a common purpose. On the 29th of November, 1789, for example, in the town of Valence, 12,000 National Guardsmen from Vivarais and the Dauphine congregated on the banks of the Ron River. United as one, the guardsmen proclaimed to remain forever united, to ensure the circulation of grain, and to maintain the laws passed by the National Assembly. This event, referred to as a federation, heralded many other federations across the nation. On the 21st of February 1790, Guardsmen from the regions of Britannia and Anjou, two ancient provinces with a long history of rivalry, denounced their past differences and proclaimed their shared status as citizens of France. In a ceremony at Pontevis, they swore the following oath. We, the French citizens of Britannia and Anjou, assembled in the Patriotic Congress in Pontevis, declare to be united by indissoluble bonds of a holy fraternity and to defend to our last breath the constitution of the state and the decrees of the National Assembly. We solemnly declare that being neither Brentons nor Amvergians, but French and citizens of the same empire, 
we renounce all our local and special privileges. We declare that happy and proud to be free, we will never suffer that we wait for our rights as man and citizens, and that we will oppose the enemies of public affairs with all the energy that comes from the feeling of long oppression and the confidence of great strength. These sorts of revolutionary ceremonies and their accompanying oaths can be found across France throughout 1790. As the revolution progressed, the extravagancies and the size of these federations only seemed to grow, with the crescendo finishing in Paris itself in mid-July. At the end of May, for example, 50,000 guardsmen gathered in the city of Lyon to participate in its federation. Now, it's not the size of the federation which I find astonishing, nor the reported 200,000 spectators which watched the event. What's fascinating is that this particular ceremony, and others like it, were often steeped in revolutionary symbols. For example, the Federation in Lyon included multiple references to the ancient Roman Republic. A temple of Concord was built in the middle of the Federation's parade ground, complete with columns that rose to be some 80 feet, or 24 metres tall. On top of the temple was a mountain built of plaster that was another 50 feet, or an additional 15 metres. And on top of the mountain was a Statue of Liberty. Now, just in case the symbolism of a Statue of Liberty on top of a temple dedicated to a Roman goddess who represented harmony wasn't clear enough to the average Frenchman, the statue held a pike in one hand and a Phrygian cap in the other. A Phrygian cap more commonly referred to as a liberty cap, was a felt hat that was presented to freed slaves in ancient Rome. I mean, how much more symbolism can you pack into one single federation? References to freed slaves held by a liberty statue with a dash of the goddess of harmony. Plus, of course, the necessary addition of revolutionary oaths, speeches and tricolour banners. The desired effects were reportedly achieved, however. The eyewitness Luc-Antoine de Champenou describes the sentiments and feelings that many participants and spectators possessed. We considered the Lyonnese Federation as the dawn of a fine day. Our souls conceived the sweetest hopes. We beheld in the revolution nothing but the period of abuses and the encouragement of talents and virtues. We thought that France was going to be peopled by none but friends, that she would become the abode of industry and commerce, that the sciences and the fine arts would there establish their empire, and we abandoned ourselves to these sweet ideas, and they were, I may say it, in the heart of the majority of the French. According to Luc-Antoine de Champenou, These sorts of patriotic sentiments can be found throughout France. Everything I have seen inclines me to agree. The definitions and boundaries of revolutionary concepts such as liberty and equality may still have been ill-defined and in flux, but throughout 1789 and 1790, a genuine pro-revolution democratic spirit did seem to engulf the citizens of France. It really does appear that the average person thought that the nation was on the precipice of something new, something bold, something great, and that they were part of it. 
Liberty trees represented growth and rejuvenation, and that's what many everyday citizens from all over the nation thought was occurring. With the exception of a few fun sponges, cynics, devout Catholics and pissed-off aristocrats, most French people felt that the new ideas and policies emanating from the revolution were creating a truly remarkable society. It's because of these unifying and nation-building sentiments and ceremonies that historian Boyd Schaefer makes a bold declaration. Schaefer proclaims that France, more than any other country, was the home of national patriotism, is too easily forgotten after the awful June of 1940. If, in fact, popular national patriotism can be said to have a birth year and a birthplace, it was 1789-90, and in France. Schaefer continues and doubles down on his insistence that these events in France are of significant historical importance. No similar widespread outburst of national patriotism had ever occurred in previous history, nor one as significant for the later development of popular nationalism. Historian Boyd Schaefer's claims are tremendous. He argues that popular nationalism, a force of such strength, the source of so much hope and pain in the 19th and 20th centuries, has its origins in revolutionary France. While I do not believe I possess an informed enough opinion about nationalism more broadly to support or refute Schaefer's position, I certainly do not deny the importance of these ceremonies as they relate to the creation of French nationalism. These popular events and the sentiments people expressed while participating in them did undeniably help to consolidate the identity of and support for the new French nation. A popular revolutionary spirit gripped the nation of France. Building on the ideas of nationhood and citizenship which had first arose in the public sphere during the pamphlet war of 1788, these revolutionary traditions, customs, ceremonies, oaths, speeches, underpinned the creation of a new nation and a new citizen. A nation and a citizen which espoused the popular revolutionary ideas of liberty and equality. Before we move on, however, there are two interesting notes to be made on these federations. Firstly, the origin of the federations was not symbolic, but rather practical. Back during the great fear which gripped France in the wake of the fall of the Bastille, many newly installed municipal governments feared for their safety. Rumours swirled of brigands and mercenaries, as did reports of foreign invasion and armed peasant uprisings. The result was that these newly formed municipal councils started to create mutual defence pacts with neighbouring communities. The pacts declared that one community would come to the military assistance of the other in the event it was attacked by hostile forces. As early as the 8th of August 1789, the communities of Rodez, Milou and Villefranche united in a confederation. Across the nation, confederations, Unions, coalitions, reconciliations, and ceremonies of fraternity or patriotism were held as municipalities banded together for mutual defence. It was only over time that the term federation was universally adopted. Thus, despite the symbolic significance the federations would eventually possess, these ceremonies originated from far more practical origins. Secondly, 
Some municipal governments were keen to host large and elaborate federations in order to demonstrate to the local populace that the National Guard was indeed under the thumb of the municipal authorities. As discussed in episode 16, Rivals for Power, the National Guard had become increasingly independent and autonomous in some regions of France. It was believed by some municipal governments that federations, which provided numerous opportunities for oaths, speeches and banner-waving, would help to signify to the people that the Guard was part of the established revolutionary government and bound to its authority. Unfortunately for these municipalities, the result of the federations was quite often the opposite. Some guardsmen began to feel loyalty not to their local municipality, but to their federation. Thus, federated battalions started to become even more autonomous, as they now had a quasi-legal excuse for disobeying the wishes of their local authority and marching to their own orders instead. These guardsmen, or federés as they are known, could argue that they no longer belonged to a single battalion, but rather a federation of battalions. A federation of battalions which, conveniently, was no longer bound to any one municipality. Thus, while officially these events were meant to promote the Guard's subordination to the revolutionary order, in reality, these federations often produced the opposite effect. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Revolutionary ceremonies and organisations weren't the only way one could publicly declare their support for the new order. As the expression goes, money talks. Revolutionary trinkets, clothing and merchandise flooded the marketplaces of the nation. Cutlery and crockery embossed with elaborate revolutionary symbols could be purchased, as could an assortment of sculptures, busts and miscellaneous artefacts. Fabric designers began to depict scenes such as the storming of the Bastille, and printers depicted elaborate illustrations of other key revolutionary events, all of which were gobbled up by the French consumer. Two articles of clothing of particular note were the Phrygian cap, otherwise known as the Liberty cap, and the tricolour cockade. Liberty caps became widespread throughout 1790 and steadily rose in popularity as the revolution progressed. 
The hats themselves were a soft, floppy, brimless cap, which were typically red, often sprouted a revolutionary cockade, and generally were characterised by a pointed crown that curled forward. Now, if that description doesn't make any sense, imagine a smaller, less elongated, more elegant version of Santa's hat, and, well, once you remove the white pom-pom at the end, you're not too far off what a Liberty Cap sort of looked like. Ho ho ho, everybody. As previously mentioned, Phrygian caps were associated with the felt caps given to recently freed slaves in ancient Rome. Roman slaves were not allowed to wear such felt caps, and thus the cap became a symbol for liberty. Symbolising the fact that the French people had been liberated from the slavery of the old regime, liberty caps became one of the most widespread and recognisable symbols of the revolution. By 1793, these liberty caps regularly created a sea of red at sectional assemblies in Paris, as the caps were worn heavily by the city's working class, commonly referred to as the sans-culottes. While eventually an iconic symbol of the sans-culottes, the caps were often featured with female statues of liberty as well, as demonstrated as early as May 1790 in the federation held at Lyon. Typically placed on these caps, as well as worn independently, were tricolour revolutionary cockades. Blue, red and white cockades were donned by many French citizens who were keen to express their support for the revolution. Like Liberty Trees and Phrygian Caps, these cockades became one of the most widespread and prominent symbols of revolutionary France. Now, for those in the audience who like miscellaneous history facts, let me quickly indulge you in two. Firstly, You may have been wondering how the colours blue, red and white came to be the colours of the French Revolution, and indeed remain the colours of the French national flag today. Well, I'm glad you asked. Back during the storming of the Bastille, the Parisians originally adopted the colour green to show their support for the revolution and their opposition to the government's coup d'etat. The chestnut trees of the Palais Royal were stripped bare as everyday people wore the green leaves to signify their allegiance. However, it was soon pointed out that the colour green, the colour of hope, was also the colour of the king's much-hated younger brother, the sinister Comte d'Artois. As a result, the colours of Paris, blue and red, were adopted instead. Subsequently, the colour of the king, white, was added by Lafayette. While the Parisians might have been doing all the work, it was after all the French Revolution, and not the Parisian Revolution. Furthermore, Blue and red were the colours of the king's popular cousin, the Duc d'Orléans. To have kept the National Guard wearing just blue and red cockades would have implied both an unwarranted and an unwanted linkage between the two. A linkage Lafayette and others certainly desired to prevent, given the fact that many suspected the Duke of wanting to use the revolution as a means for replacing Louis XVI on the throne. Thus, with the addition of the Bourbon White, we end up with the famous tricolour of France. Random history fact number two will be of particular note to my American friends in the audience. Liberty caps were of course used as symbols during the American Revolution as well, and future Americans were keen to incorporate the important symbol into public works. One of the most recognisable symbols of the US is the United States Capitol. I'm not talking about Washington, D.C., but specifically the grand white Capitol building that is the home of the United States Congress. At the very top of the huge dome which dominates the Capitol building is a Statue of Freedom. 
The statue depicts a female figure wearing a military helmet and holding a sheathed sword in her right hand and a laurel wreath and a shield in her left. Interestingly, the dome's architect, Thomas Walter, originally had the Statue of Freedom holding a liberty cap on top of a large pole, the pole being an additional reference to the ancient Roman ceremonies which emancipated slaves. Furthermore, the sculptor, Thomas Crawford, who was commissioned to create the Statue of Freedom, went even further. Crawford proposed in his second design that the lovely lady wear a liberty cap. Yet despite both the dome's architect and the statue's sculptor proposing that the Statue of Freedom feature a liberty cap, if you inspect the statue currently atop of the Capitol Dome, you'll find no liberty caps anywhere. This is because the dome's creation was commenced in the mid-1850s just a few years before the American Civil War. Furthermore, the then Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, was responsible for overseeing the construction of the new dome. The same Jefferson Davis who would be the President of the Confederate States of America. In fact, Davis would be the President of the Confederate South years before the construction of the Capitol building in the North was completed. As a result of Davis's oversight, it should not be surprising that symbols representing liberated slaves did not make it to the final cut. Now, in the spirit of grey history, Jefferson did make the not unreasonable point that America, or at least white America, had never been enslaved, had always been free, and thus a liberty cap made no sense. He suggested instead the helmet that the Statue of Freedom wears today. However, I don't want to get bogged down in Civil War ambiguities. Grey History Season 2, perhaps. Where I'm going with all of this is that when you next visit the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., you won't see a Liberty Cap on top of the dome, but you can now visualise where one could have been. Anyway, I have well and truly digressed. Seeking to capitalise on the revolutionary spirit spreading across the nation, as well as to consolidate its own position of power, the National Assembly decided that it was time to get on the patriotic ceremonial bandwagon. The Paris Commune proposed to the Assembly in the first week of June that Paris should hold its own federation on the first anniversary of the fall of the Bastille. The result was the famous Festival of the Federation in Paris on the 14th of July, 1790. Now, the origin of the Commune's proposal to hold the Festival of the Federation is a little murky. Perhaps some leading members of both the Commune and the Assembly saw an opportunity to hold a grand event which would cement their own shaky authority and seized it. Perhaps, however, its origins were far more popular, with evidence suggesting that Parisian National Guard units were actually the source of the idea and that they had lobbied the Commune to hold a grand federation. Whether the event was or was not suggested by the people is largely irrelevant, however because it is only with the genuine popular support of the people that the event could actually have been held successfully. What do I mean by this? Well, by the time the Assembly approved of the festival's plans on the 21st of June, there wasn't much time left for the preparations to occur. The anniversary of the fall of the Bastille was just over three weeks away. The site selected for the celebration was the Champ de Mars, a large open space between the Seine and the military academy École Militaire. The Champ de Mars was historically used by cadets attending the École Militaire as a parade ground, and in an ironic twist, 
The space was actually the campsite of royal troops the year before. Troops which were meant to suppress the Parisians in case of disturbances after Necker's dismissal. The organisers of the Federation envisioned that an amphitheatre would be constructed on the Champ de Mars, and that the stadium-like structure would hold 400,000 spectators. For this to occur, however, the site required a significant amount of excavation. Heavy rains at the end of June hampered the original workforce of some 12,000 people, and it soon became apparent that preparations for the event would not be completed in time. Disaster loomed on the horizon. The result of this seemingly inevitable fiasco, however, was anything but. By all reports, a truly remarkable moment of social unity took hold as Paris transformed itself for the revolutionary cause. Underscoring the popular nature of these federations, the population of Paris mobilised itself in order to complete the necessary preparations. Tens of thousands of people volunteered to help excavate the site, prepare the route of the parade and construct the necessary pavilions and stages. Furthermore, everyone seemingly got in on the act. Those assisting the preparations included rich people, poor people, well-dressed people, people in rags, old men, boys, comedians, clerks, actors, scholars, nuns, priests, prostitutes, watchmakers, seamstresses, shopkeepers and soldiers. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor, all pitched in to help the revolutionary cause. Account after account demonstrates the popular enthusiasm that gripped the residents of Paris as tens of thousands of people united to make the revolutionary celebration possible. One story tells of an aristocratic lady who fainted while helping with excavations. She was assisted by a fishwife who wheeled her away in a wheelbarrow. Another account tells of a man who threw his valuables on the ground before jumping into a ditch to labour away. When someone pointed out to him that his expensive watch was still lying in his coat, he claimed, One does not mistrust one's brothers. Bands played and monks distributed free food and alcohol as the people of Paris laboured away like ants in synchronised harmony. Lafayette and other deputies joined in the construction efforts, as did war heroes as well as well-regarded members of high society. The king himself made an appearance, and workers received him with an arch that they formed with their pickaxes. Louis-Sebastien Mercier wrote of the truly miraculous sight he saw as people from all stations joined as one. I saw 150,000 citizens of all classes, ages and sexes making the most superb picture of concord, labour, movement and joy that has ever been witnessed. He continues. What fine men and splendid citizens of Paris who could transform eight days of work into the most touching, unexpected and most novel festival that there has ever been. It is a type of spectacle so original that even the most blasé of men can hardly fail to be moved. What I have just read to you underscores the truly popular nature of this movement. The festival of the Federation might have been staged. It might have been the idea of a regime which was seeking to consolidate its ever-questioned authority. 
It might have been an attempt by the government to celebrate a unity and harmony that didn't really exist. But, as the preparations for the festival make clear, the Federation itself could only have succeeded because it was genuinely popular. Because the ideas the Federation represented were genuinely popular. Because the revolution of 1789 was genuinely popular. In future episodes, we'll discuss in great length how this revolution became unpopular. How its heroes fell out of favour, how its supporters deserted it, how its fights with the Catholic Church and contradictions within the new constitution derailed it. But, make no mistake, throughout 1789 and 1790, the French Revolution was a popular revolution. So popular, in fact, that historian Boyd Schaefer claims France was the birthplace of modern popular nationalism. The Festival of the Federation itself was a truly impressive event. At 8 in the morning, some 50,000 National Guardsmen from all over France commenced a huge parade throughout the city of Paris. Lasting more than five hours, the Guardsmen started to arrive at the Champ de Mars at roughly 1pm. The citizen soldiers, who were marching at eight abreast in pouring rain, were accompanied by the deputies of the National Assembly, who joined the Guardsmen at the Place Louis XV. Also in the parade were the original electors of Paris, the creators of the National Guard, as well as the current members of the Paris Commune, which had replaced the electors. Soldiers, sailors and veterans also marched in the parade, along with countless bands and musicians. Of course, you can't forget the children. I mean, will somebody please think of the children? So according to eyewitness Helen Maria Williams, a children's battalion of miniature guardsmen marched alongside their older mentors. The brigade held a sign that proclaimed, The Hope of the Patrie. Arriving at the Champ de Mars, the parade was greeted by some 400,000 spectators. The common people rained applause upon the guard, while the heavens continued to downpour on participants and spectators alike. In the soaking wet, the guard passed under a magnificent triumphal arch of some 80 feet, or 24 metres, which had been built specifically for the ceremony. Talleyrand, deputy of the National Assembly, friend of Mirabeau, and one of the chief architects of the fight the revolutionaries were currently waging with the Catholic Church, watched the guardsmen file in. Standing at the large altar of the fatherland in his ceremonial garb, the Bishop of Autun grew frustrated at the time it took for the entire parade to arrive. He was, after all, absolutely drenched, and in his frustration, he asked his assistant, Those buggers, why don't they arrive? The procession did finally arrive, and the ceremony did finally begin. Surrounded by 300 priests wearing white surplices and tricolour scarfs, the bishop held a grand mass. Once the benediction was done, it was then Lafayette's turn to dominate the spotlight. Helen Maria Williams recorded, The middle of the amphitheatre was crowded with an immense multitude of soldiers. The National Assembly walked towards the pavilion, where they placed themselves with the king, the queen, the royal family and their attendants, and opposite this group rise in perspective the hills of Passé and Chaou, covered with people. 
The standards, of which there was one presented to each department of the kingdom as a mark of brotherhood by the citizens of Paris, were carried to the altar to be consecrated by the bishop. High mass was performed, after which Monsieur de Lafayette, who had been appointed by the king major general of the federation, ascended the altar, gave the signal, and himself took the national oath. In an instant, every sword was drawn, and every arm was lifted up. The king pronounced the oath, which the president of the National Assembly repeated, and the solemn words were re-echoed by 600,000 voices, while the queen raised the dauphin in her arms, showing him to the people and the army. At the moment the consecrated banners were displayed, the sun, which had been obscured by frequent showers in the course of the morning, burst forth, while the people lifted their eyes to heaven and called upon the deity to look down and witness the sacred engagement into which they had entered. A respectful silence was succeeded by the cries, the shouts, the acclamations of the multitude. They wept, they embraced each other, and then dispersed. This federation had a bit of everything. Talleyrand gave an impressive mass. Lafayette, who dominated the proceedings, rode around on a superb horse to quote the Marquis de Ferrière and led the guard in an oath to the nation, the law, and the king. The president of the National Assembly led the deputies in their own oath, and the king proclaimed, I, king of the French, swear to employ the power delegated to me in maintaining the constitution decreed by the National Assembly and accepted by me. The festivities didn't stop on the 14th, however, with parties and events held throughout Paris in the following days. Similar festivities were held throughout France on the 14th, including miniature reenactments of the storming of the Bastille, as communities celebrated the anniversary of the important day. But, while the festivities did not end on July the 14th, the harmony did, if it was ever there in the first place. Historian Adolphe Thiers, a future Prime Minister and President of France in the mid-1800s, notes that despite the public spectacle preaching harmony and unity, the exact opposite re-emerged almost immediately. This fête de la Fédération, though so affecting a spectacle, excited only a momentary emotion. On the next day, all hearts returned to their old animosities. The war of parties was renewed. Petty ministerial quarrels recommenced. If the official purpose of the Federation was to celebrate harmony, its unofficial purpose was also to create it. In celebrating unity, the festival's grand spectacle succeeded. Yet in creating unity, the Fête de la Fédération undoubtedly failed. As historian Thiers notes, the next day all hearts returned to their old animosities. Deep divisions had riddled the National Assembly for nearly a year, and no amount of pageantry was going to resolve them. Furthermore, the Assembly's recent actions against the Catholic Church threatened to entrench these deep divisions and jeopardise the public peace. Far from being united in patriotic harmony, some regions had experienced unrest in the middle of 1790, and this unrest was often linked to religious issues. The Federation's blazon attempt to celebrate a harmony 
that didn't exist is criticised by some historians, including historian Jonathan Israel. Understandably, the first anniversary of the Bastille's fall, though lavishly celebrated with splendid illuminations and fireworks displays, was far from being the harmonious occasion many historians have claimed it to have been. Rather, despite the hype, it reflected deep and irresolvable splits that increasingly menaced the monarchy and the revolution's future. The ways in which the Fête de la Fédération reflected the deep and irresolvable divisions of the revolution can be found by looking off centre stage. For example, in the days leading up to the festival, many aristocratic families left Paris, remembering the chaos of the October days and fearful of what such a horde of unwashed plebeians heralded. Conservative pamphlets denounced the festival as sacrilege, noting the contradictions between the religious overtones of the festival and the heresy the deputies were pursuing with their controversial religious reforms. However, it wasn't just conservative voices that distrusted and despised the festival. Radical journalists feared a military crackdown, and that the festival was a trap laid to gather the patriots of the nation and facilitate their arrest. Others criticised the festival as an attempt of a failing regime to shore up its diminishing authority. Thus, as historian Jonathan Israel states, the festival also displayed the divisions of France, not just its unity. Other historians critique the shortcomings and contradictions of not just the Fête de la Fédération in Paris, but the regional federations which had been occurring for months. Historian Alphonse Allah, for example, criticises the entrenched divisions between the participants of the federations, primarily the middle-class National Guard, and the spectators of the federations, the common people. Entrenched divisions which reflected the institutional divide between active and passive citizens. Far from representing unity, according to Allah, these inherent divisions within the federations underscored the factionalism which was reflected throughout France and the National Assembly. However, while the division between participants and spectators can legitimately be seen in a negative light, I do think it's important to remember the fact that the origin of these ceremonies was a military one. The National Guard dominated these revolutionary celebrations not because they were active citizens, but because the federations were originally packs of mutual military assistance. Furthermore, while one can question the success of the Fête de la Fédération in fostering harmony, and while one can criticise its obviously staged nature, I do not believe one can question the popular support for the federations more broadly. After all, the only reason the Fête de la Fédération in Paris actually was able to go ahead was because tens of thousands of Parisians poured into the streets to make it happen. The only reason hundreds of thousands of people watched the event, despite the soaking rain, was because hundreds of thousands of people genuinely wanted to partake in the revolutionary celebration, even if only as spectators. Indeed, numerous eyewitness accounts allude to the event's popular support, including the British observer Helen Maria Williams. The 28-year-old novelist wrote, I promised to send you a description of the Federation. One must have been present to form any judgment of a scene 
the sublimity of which depended much less on its external magnificence than the effect it produced on the minds of its spectators. The people, sure, the people were the sight. I may tell you of pavilions, of triumphal arches, of altars on which incense was burnt, of 200,000 men walking in procession. But how am I to give you an adequate idea of the behaviour of the spectators? How am I to paint the impetuous feelings of that immense, that exulting multitude? Half a million of people assembled at a spectacle, which furnished every image that can elevate the mind of man, which connected the enthusiasm of moral sentiment with the solemn pomp of religious ceremonies, which addressed itself at once to the imagination, the understanding, and the heart. When I hear an eyewitness like that, I think two things. Firstly, perhaps Helen Maria Williams may have been drinking some revolutionary Kool-Aid. Secondly, even if she was, what an account. Even if the average spectator was only half as excited about the day as Williams was, that's still pretty damn excited. Other reports confirm the notion of the event's popular support. The London Times reported on the 20th of July... Such a magnificent association of free men, emancipated from the shackles of despotism within so short a space of time, is hitherto unparalleled in the annals of history. These sentiments are shared by historian Ippolite Taine. Usually the first to criticise the revolution, Taine has nothing but praise for the events held on July the 14th, both in Paris and in the country as a whole. In every town of every district, department and commune in France, there is the same oath on the same day. Never was there a more perfect social compact heard of. Here, for the first time in the world, everybody beholds a veritable legitimate society, for it is founded on free pledges, on solemn stipulations and on actual consent. Taine isn't alone in his considerable praise for the controversial revolutionary celebrations. Historian Simon Sharma vigorously defends the federations which occurred throughout France in 1789 and 1790. Sharma proclaims that many of the federations were spontaneous, not staged, and despite the domination of the National Guard, the ceremonies themselves enjoyed considerable popular support amongst the common people. While the manifestations of the new revolutionary religion, the cult of federation, were theatrical and necessarily ephemeral, they were no less important for being that. In the emotive climate of 1790, they arguably made more of an impact through arresting spectacle than any of the elaborate institutional alterations on which historians have, until quite recently, concentrated. And it would be quite mistaken to see them as so much orchestrated mummery staged by defensive politicians to disguise the fragility of their legitimacy. Overwhelming evidence from many regions of France suggests not only that many of the federations of 1790 were spontaneous, but also that they engaged enormous numbers of people in their dramatizations of shared patriotic enthusiasm, 
notwithstanding the fact that the organising forces were always National Guardsmen who, at this time, were better off active citizens. The numbers of those involved, both as participants and spectators, make a better case for regarding the revolution of 1790 as more of a popular revolution than the coercive Jacobinism of 1793-94, to which the term has been more frequently applied. According to Sharma, the revolution of 1789-90 was a popular revolution. Everything I have seen inclines me to agree. The ideas the revolution represented were genuinely popular. The revolution itself was genuinely popular. The hope the revolution inspired was real and tangible. And it's because of these things that millions of people nationwide participated in all sorts of ceremonies, festivals and celebrations which demonstrated their enthusiasm for the revolution. It's because of these things that citizens and foreigners alike recorded the patriotic sentiments that captured the nation. People of all walks of life purchased revolutionary trinkets, wore revolutionary clothing and joined political clubs and societies to debate revolutionary ideas. It's because of these things that historians like Boyd Schaefer point to France as being the birthplace of modern popular nationalism. Yes, the revolution suffered from real divisions. Yes, there were those who resented the revolution, and there were those who were isolated because of it. But from liberty trees to liberty hats, from revolutionary cockades to revolutionary parades, there is overwhelming evidence to suggest that the revolution of 1789 was a popular one. Unfortunately for the revolutionaries of 1789, however, it would not remain that way. For a range of reasons, the Fête de la Fédération can be viewed as a high point of the initial revolution. From here, from the perspective of many centrists and conservatives, it's all downhill. Down into the depths of hell. But hell is where apostates belong. For in November 1789, the assembly began its feud with the Catholic Church. And by mid-1790, that feud had escalated into an all-out war. Like all good holy wars, fire and brimstone would be the result. Thank you for listening to episode 18, A Popular Revolution. Next week, I promise fire and brimstone. Actually, no, I don't. I promise the lead-up to fire and brimstone. In the next episode, we'll dive into how the revolution made its most powerful enemy, the Catholic Church. The feud between the people and the people's church would be biblical. Now, before you go, there is a high likelihood that next week's episode of Grey History might be slightly delayed as I try to outrun slash outfly the coronavirus and return to the safety of home. If episode 19 is delayed, the best place to look is either the website or the Facebook page. So if you haven't already chucked it a like, may I suggest you do so. Also, don't forget that in the description of this episode is a link to multiple illustrations of the parades and ceremonies that we've discussed today. Finally, if you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History and you'd like to have some more Grey History, then please don't forget to tell somebody about it. Since everyone can't go outside, this is a perfect opportunity to spread the word about a history podcast that explores the grey. As always, if you have any questions or queries, please do send them through. 
Thank you for listening and have a great day. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.